Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal Worship Service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. this morning is the second commandment taken from Exodus chapter 20 verses 4 through 6 you shall not make for yourself a carved image any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth you shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I the Lord your God am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me, and keep my commandments. This second commandment of the law teaches us not to worship idols. In our culture, this teaching seems very commonsensical. We think that we have risen above this sort of thing. This is what we see in very backwards and primitive cultures. Honestly, who do you know these days who bows down to wood and stone? That was not true for the contemporaries of the Israelites. They had many deities to whom worship was given. Gods for rain and gods for harvest. Gods for fertility and gods for the dead. These people would turn to these man-made idols and seek their blessings from them. But don't let our sophistication fool you. This commandment remains imminently applicable today. Because we remain sinners. We remain very temptable. And our temptation is to forget our God. But He is the Lord our God. He remains jealous of his worship, and he continues to exercise his wrath on sin and show mercy on sinners. What kinds of things replace God in our estimation? Idolatry happens when men turn to anything less than God for salvation from whatever they're seeking a relief from. It may be pleasure, it may be modern technology, education, or science, these can all be idols. It can be government or its programs. Many people find solace in their retirement funds or bank accounts. Their guns, their house, or their own prowess in providing for themselves. They don't turn to God. It can certainly be good things like eating well, or Christian education. Or certain methods of education, like classical education, or homeschool, or doing courtships. Some even idolize the human institution of the church. But all of these, as saviors, fall short of our living and powerful God who created the world and makes covenant with his people. He is beyond these things, and he governs means. For instance... Here he instructs us not to worship him through, or by means of, image. This is why we object to the icons of Eastern Orthodoxy, or the crucifixes of Catholicism. These things invite us to fall into superstition and sin. 
And all of this to say that when we replace God with his gifts, or we refuse to worship him as he commands, we stir up his jealousy and we invite his just wrath. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so if you're willing and able, please kneel. to the Ephesian elders. He's, uh, he's in Miletus, which is just south of Ephesus, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, last, last week we looked at how he opened up this message uh, to these elders who have traveled 30 miles down, talking to them, and he reminded them of his example. He said, I've, I've lived among you for years with tears. He participated in their trials and their suffering. And so he's, he's bringing to mind his example of how he had lived because they know who he is and how he works because he's lived among them. He was emotionally bound to them, and he's leaving them. But we know he wasn't just leaving them to ditch them or to, to go take it easy for a while. He's, he's not trying to escape from them, but he's, he's on mission. He's, he's going on further witness, and he's, he's going to suffer. And he knows he's going to suffer because it's been prophesied in every city that chains and tribulations await him. And so we stopped last week where Paul said this, Therefore I testify to you this day, that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. So Paul testifies that he is innocent. He's innocent of the blood of all men because he has been faithful to declare the whole counsel of God to them. He has not backed off. Anything that he thought was helpful, he taught them. He instructed them. He didn't, he didn't go easy on the hard stuff. He said, no, you need to know what God is, who God is, and what he thinks about everything that you're doing. You need to know this because the gospel brings life. And nothing but the gospel brings life. Because if Paul falls short of the gospel of Jesus Christ in any way, then he's no longer innocent of the blood of all men. So he declares the whole counsel of God, and he is vindicated by his faithfulness. And that's where our, our text picks up today. Uh, verse 28. Acts 20, verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So because Paul is innocent... He's warning these men to be careful to pick up the baton that he is handing them. He says, I am innocent because I've declared the whole counsel of God. Therefore, you take heed. This is a testimony that elders have a responsibility to God for the state of the flock over which he has placed them. They will answer for the blood of the sheep. 
And, not, and, and beyond that, this text teaches us that the sheep are precious to God. This, this, these, this verse is a testimony that God loves his people. He says, shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Jesus loved us so much that he died for us. So this flock is precious and elders have a high calling. They answer to God for the blood of the sheep. And they have a duty to follow Paul's example, which is to speak truth boldly and completely. They may not water it down. They may not omit it. They may not shy away from what God says. Or else they become culpable for the resulting loss of life. But that begs the question, what loss of life? Paul goes on to explain the nature of sheep and shepherds and the existence of danger. Verses 29 to 30. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Enemies are out there. Savage wolves will devour sheep. It's in their nature. Wolves will fleece the flock. They kill and eat. They terrorize and destroy. And they are coming. This is a warning because life is dangerous. Paul's presence in Ephesus has been a protection for the church there. He's kept the wolves at bay. Paul is respected. God has shown his power through Paul. Remember how miracles were being done by him. His sweat rags would cast out demons. And yet when he was imitated by the, the imposters, the Jewish imposters, what does the demon say? Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? And then he sends them out shamed, naked, and beaten, injured. Paul knows that the enemies of God are everywhere and they are constant. And because he is no longer going to be here, he is warning these elders to be on their guard. Because the Christian life and ministry is fraught with peril, both from without and from within. From without, he says, I know that as soon as I leave, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. He says, I know, they're coming. They're going to they're gonna come in. So we've got wolves coming in from the outside. But he also says, from among yourselves, men will rise up. So, so Christians fight enemies both outside and inside. This task is enormous. And leaders, their responsibility, not just for themselves, but for those they're in, who they're given charge over. And our enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh are persistent enemies. They must be fought and they must be resisted and they must be killed and ultimately destroyed. But life, this side of heaven... This side of death is a constant battle. 
that doesn't leave us without hope. Because Paul doesn't leave the Ephesian elders without Jesus. And we know this because Paul gives us his counterexample and expects them to imitate him. Verses 31 and 32. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone, night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So Paul reminds us of his example again. He started out with his example in the sermon. He says, you know me. I've lived among you. You've seen how, who I am and how I work. And now he says, remember that for three years I was an example to you. I consistently warned everyone, night and day with tears. He passionately ministered to them. Paul has been vigilant in taking heed. And being diligent and faithful requires stamina. And Paul has displayed what he expects these men to be like. He's not asking them to do anything more than he's already done. He's lived it in their presence, and he's communicated the love of God clearly to them. And his life was victorious. Paul was in Ephesus for three years. And Demetrius the silversmith bears witness to the fact that the gospel has gone out to all of Asia. The church is growing. So Paul's leaving them, and he's telling them they must be careful. They must be on their guard. But... I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance. He leaves them with the means to accomplish all that he asks of them. Paul is an emissary. He's a missionary. He's on mission from God. And he is innocent because he has been faithful to his call. He has communicated the gospel clearly and directly. He is not shunned to declare the whole counsel of God. And now he entrusts these men to the same God who has empowered him all this time. He says, God will work in and among you. Jesus is here. You are baptized. You have the gospel. They know God, and they know Jesus Christ, because Paul bears witness to them that they do. So Paul now encourages them, after warning them, by reminding them of their faith and the power it gives to them. It's able to build them up and give them a place among all the sanctified. So what can we learn from this? First... Enemies are savage. Wolves are savage. Paul likens false teachers to savage wolves. Wolves are motivated. They hate God. Because they hate God, they hate his representatives on earth. Jesus promised us that if we followed him, we would be taking up our cross. There would be persecution and suffering as we walk in his footsteps. Because the world hated him, it will hate us also. And why is the world so motivated? 
Because Jesus is a threat to everything the world stands for. Jesus overcomes the world. He supplants it. He overthrows it. God's enemies correctly see Jesus for the threat that he really is to everything that they stand for. They recognize that victory for Jesus is death for them. So the wolves are motivated. They're not only motivated, but they're deadly. Wolves are deadly to sheep. And by this, I mean to draw out that the realities of the spiritual realm are real. Spiritual warfare has real casualties. The death that comes from sin is real death. Now the lives of the world seem innocuous. It seems okay for us to dabble in various forms of disobedience because it's not a big deal. It's, it's just a white lie. It's just a little misconstruing of the truth. When Satan tempted Eve, he was tricky. Did God really say you can't eat of any of the fruit in the garden? No, surely you won't die if you eat of it. So Eve starts to think. She allows herself to go down that path. And it's by that slippery slope that we go from allowing ourselves one little indulgence that leads to another and so forth. And finally we end up in hell. Eternal damnation is what the gospel says awaits sinners. Now, gross sins are gross. They're obvious. And little sins don't seem that bad. But sin always initiates a trajectory, no matter how big it is. Just one little bite. That initiated a trajectory. So it's precisely at these crossroads that we must make a definitive decision. Now, people don't start out as a bitter, cranky old codger. Beggars or alcoholics or fornicators, that's not where they started. You know, the fornicator starts out with a look or allowing his mind to wander. It turns into lust. Failure to guard the heart or the eyes. Opportunity arises. And before you know it, he's seeking opportunity. And finally he falls into that pit of death. But Solomon tells us right there in Proverbs, don't even walk past the road that goes past her door. The alcoholic starts out with just one drink. Alcohol's not bad, right? When it becomes your savior, it is. The beggar starts out as a lazy man. 
He's thinking, oh, just another minute of sleep. I, I can put it off just another hour. Turns into another day. Turns into another week, another month. And pretty soon, he's begging for his food. He's living on the streets. The bitter, crotchety, angry old man or woman. Angry at God and angry at the world. Can't come within an inch of them without getting acid spilled on you. It doesn't start that way. They refuse to humble their heart. But it started with something small. Maybe an offense that they wouldn't deal with. Maybe uh, they were sinned against. And yet they're justifying their sin by focusing on their own offense rather than on Christ. And looking what Jesus suffered for them. And softening their heart before God. The problem is that every sin, no matter how little, ultimately ends up as either one of two things. It is either the just cause of our eternal damnation in hell, or it's the reason that Jesus was nailed to some wood 2,000 years ago. And both of those are gross. And that's why every sin is gross. So confess it and repent of it, and Jesus will cover it. But wolves can be defined as those who are given over to sin. They're lost. They hate God, and therefore they hate their neighbor. And they're deadly to sheep. So wolves are motivated and they're deadly and they're near. They're among you. They will be among the sheep. They will rise up from among you. So Paul warns them to keep watch, but keep watch over who? Well, over themselves. Keep yourself on a short leash. Keep, keep those who are close to you accountable. That's what living in community is. Keep watch over the flock. Paul warns the elders to keep themselves pure and chaste, to live the gospel so that they're dealing with sin in their own lives, so that they may be able to deal with sin in those around them. So they need to, they need to watch out over their own house, in their own province. We don't need to go digging in the neighbor's garden to find weeds. I'll guarantee you we've got our own right here. God expects us to be faithful with what he gives us. So that is what we answer for. We don't answer for what's going on in our neighbor's field. That's between him and God. We have enough work to deal with the things that God puts in our own laps. Holiness here requires constant vigilance and unceasing work. Holiness, righteousness means a life of sacrifice, a life of service. 
a life of taking up your cross and following Jesus. So wolves are savage. And so we need to take heed, watch, and remember. We need to put our shoulder to the plow because ministry is work. Because of the fall, because Eve took that one little bite of the apple, work was cursed, and we die. And this means that work, or ministry, service, living as a Christian, is suffering. It's hard. Ultimately, we die. It's sacrifice. It's a life of living sacrifices. We, that, Jesus sacrificed himself. That means he, he was nailed to a cross on our behalf. And he tells us to follow in his footsteps. Now, we're Christians. That means we believe in the gospel, which means that we know that that death is followed by life. We believe in resurrection. We believe in resurrection life, and that's a gift of God. So we live our lives in sacrifice, and another way to call it is, is we live our lives, we live disciplined lives. We are called in the Great Commission to disciple the nations, and that means discipling. What that is, is we're bestowing discipline. It's a gift. We, we teach them all to obey, to obey all the things that Jesus commands. Jesus commanded, that Jesus taught. So it requires diligence, patience, and endurance. But it's worth it because the flock is precious. Our lives are valuable. Jesus died for us. He, he died for every sheep that he calls to himself. So the task is not impossible. The work is doable. And we know it is because Paul lived it in front of the Ephesians and Jesus lived it in front of his disciples. And they, they call us to follow their examples. So don't despair because we're not left without hope or without God. In fact, in the gospel, we are promised the presence of both God and his blessings in our lives. We have hope. Paul commends the elders to God and the word of his grace, which is powerful. God is real. God cares. God loves you. And he will help you persevere. That is the gospel. Jesus came to communicate God's love to us. And he promised his spirit to us that we might succeed in the work he has given to us. Jesus is taking dominion over the earth. He is fulfilling the command that God gave to Adam. He's allowing us to share in that glory. But we cannot do it, and we do not do it on our own steam. We must rest in God. Because when I am weak, then I am strong, because Christ is strong in me. Christian work makes you strong. Faithfulness and perseverance in the face of more than you can handle is possible, not because you can handle it, because you can't handle it. God will give you more than you can handle. If you try to handle it, you will suffer and fail, because that is not faith. You must give it to God. Faithfulness and perseverance in the face 
of more than you can handle is possible because nothing is more than God can handle. Nothing is more than God can handle. And as God handles it in and through us, He blesses us beyond what we deserve and what we can comprehend. He shares His glory with us. So Paul is fully justified in entrusting the saints in Ephesus to His faithful and true God and His Word of grace. In the name of the Father, the Son, the word and the sacrament go together. And the best parallel I can think of is some of the food uh, food pairings that we uh, that we know. You can think of your uh, favorite food and. Uh, those that go together, those that are just better together than they are separately. For some it might be uh, warm pie and ice cream, otherwise others it might be hamburger and ketchup, surf and turf, or chocolate and peanut butter. The Word and the sacraments go together. Without the sacrament, the Word gradually evolves into mere lecturing. Or if the Word is fed in a manner that is pumped up or in an excitable way, it can push people around and bully God's people. Likewise, the sacrament without the word gradually turns into superstition and blind observance. On that side of the ditch, it becomes indistinguishable from rank paganism. The word is not to be understood as a brief set of instructions or a mini lecture. Rather, think of the word that accompanies the sacraments as the word of faith. As the word of faith, the word accomplishes that for which it was designed for by God. Faithfully stated, it startles. And I mean startled in a positive way. The word is brought in such a way that we're awakened. We're awakened from the ordinary week and we're brought to a place that is fresh and new. New depths are revealed each time we set ourselves to carefully think and to meditate on it. There are at least two unfaithful alternatives to rightly startling the people of God with the word. The first is to change the word so that it's smooth, that it goes down smoothly. This is what happens when you are told that the sacraments are all about religion, and that religion is defined by what you do in your own solitude, in your own place. Here the sacrament is all about you and your conscience, but the word is cheapened by this. The other is to say true things, but to say them over and over again, all in exactly the same way, so that the words wear a groove in your soul that you no longer pay attention. Unbelief is often masqueraded as liturgical fidelity in these old paths. But here today, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and the Word of God are perfectly paired. They're paired together by faith. Faith in the triune God of Scripture. Take and eat. Take and drink. For by this means, accompanied by a faithful word, we are building a city. And this is not an invisible, ethereal city either. This is a real city. And today, all are invited to the Lord's table who are baptized and are under the authority of Christ's body, which is his church. By eating the bread and drinking the wine together with us, you acknowledge that you are a sinner, apart from the holy and sovereign mercy of God, 
and that you are trusting alone in Christ for your salvation. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.